the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. On today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, we begin a week's look at Easter. Join us as we live the resurrection life next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. As weeks go throughout the year, this is a very special one, Easter week. The whole week leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is that resurrection that we'll focus on this week as we prepare for Easter. Today we begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 34, living the resurrection. If there is indeed a resurrection, if there is a gospel, then we should be living like it. So what does that look like? We'll spend the next couple of days examining that question and the answers found in Scripture. With today's broadcast of Abounding Grace, here's Pastor Gary Wagner. Paul understands, as I hope we are coming to understand, that the resurrection is the centerpiece of the Christian life. It is the capstone of what are called the first things, that Christ died for us, according to the scriptures, for our sins, that he was buried in a tomb on our behalf in order to show that the humiliation and the curse of death had reached its fullness in him. And then on the third day, he was raised again in glory and power to the right hand of the Father. And Paul says, if that grand reality is denied, The consequences are devastating. They are devastating for your faith, because then your faith is in a dead man. They are devastating for your hope, because you have nothing then to hope in. They are devastating for the authority of the Bible, and the authority of the apostolic tradition. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then the apostles are liars. They are false witness bearers. You can't trust them. And if you can't trust them here on the first things, then you can't trust them anywhere else. But of course, Paul says, Christ has been raised. These evil consequences are not ours because in fulfillment of the scriptures, the Father raised him up on the third day in power and in glory. He exalted him to his right hand and he is King of kings and Lord of lords. He will reign at the Father's right hand until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. And then at the end, after he has put down all rule, and all authority and all power, he will return. He will return to perfect and consummate that kingdom. 
He will come to defeat the very last enemy, the most pernicious enemy, the enemy that not one of us can overcome or avoid. And that enemy is death. And then, as our mediator, the one whom the Father gave us to save us, to redeem us, to gather all things into one under him, he will hand that perfected kingdom back over to his Father. And then together with the Father and the Spirit, the triune God will be all in all. But Paul's not completed his, assi- his assessment of the resurrection. He has two major sections yet that he wants to cover. And in our context today, we will only be looking at the first section found in verses 24 through 34. And this I am calling the resurrection life or living the resurrection life or for maybe a little snappy, more snappy title, what you believe about the future will have a powerful impact on how you live in the present. In Paul's mind, these are on a continuum. What you believe about the future is going to have a controlling influence. It is going to define and it is going to direct how you live in the present. So let's consider this resurrection life today. In verses 24 through 33, he gives some practical consequences of denying the resurrection. And these are imminently practical. However, he begins with what is the most difficult passage in this letter, and perhaps in the entire New Testament. Now, beloved, I really don't have time today to get into this difficult issue. But let me read it to you and then give you a brief explanation. Paul says, else or otherwise, what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Obviously here, some of the Corinthians, probably not many, but some were practicing what we might call vicarious baptism or baptism on behalf of someone who is already dead. There is no way to get around the fact that this was substitutionary baptism. Now, this is, of course, a very abhorrent practice, which is actually performed today in the Mormon church. Many people fault Paul for even mentioning this in this context without fully discrediting it. Because this assumes that someone on this side of eternity can do something to change someone's spiritual state after their death. And yet everything in Scripture shouts out against this. Baptism is connected only to personal faith or the faith of the parents and the hope of future faith of a child. Now, There are 30 or 40 interpretations of this verse according to estimates, which is why we will not fully discuss this issue today. Paul does, as a matter of fact, correct this practice later on. But he uses this here to make a very powerful point. 
Whatever the resurrection of the dead means, why are you doing it if there is no resurrection? So Paul brings up their practice of baptizing for the dead to say, why do it? If the dead are not raised, it doesn't matter what happens to the dead, and you can't do anything for the dead by being baptized for them, because baptism is always done in light of the future resurrection and full salvation. If the dead are not raised, why do you do it? It doesn't matter. It is absolutely pointless, a worthless practice, which, of course, it truly was anyway. But Paul then moves to things of more substance in verses 30 through 32. Verse 29 says, If there is no resurrection for the dead, why baptize for the dead? And then verses 30 through 32 teach, if there's no resurrection, why suffer for Christ? In verse 30, Paul says, why stand in danger every hour? Paul's bold, uncompromising stand for the gospel got him into trouble. A lot of trouble. Remember his list in 2 Corinthians, and I also believe it's listed in Galatians. He said, three times I have spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been beaten with rods twice. I've been left for dead. I was bitten by a snake on Malta. And he says, why go through all this? Why stand in jeopardy every hour? My life hanging by the slenderest thread if the dead are not raised. You see, if there is no resurrection... The motivational heart of cheerful suffering and Christian courage is literally ripped out. And this may be why we have so passively accepted in the church and the broader culture tyranny that our forefathers would have all died to stamp out. This may be why we have become so passive about major theological errors in the broader church because we are living, practically speaking, as if there really is no resurrection. See, if you believe in the resurrection, it creates courage. It creates boldness. It turned wimpy Peter into a bold apostle. Hey, we've got to obey God rather than man, he said. Do what you want to do. Kill me. But I remember what my Savior said. Don't fear those who can kill the body. And that is all we do fear in this culture. Jesus commanded us not to fear them. Beloved, it is a command. Do not fear those who kill the body. Fear Him who, after the body is dead, can cast both body and soul into hell. So Christian courage and boldness and cheerfulness for suffering for Christ and sacrifice for Him comes from that backdrop of, hey, this life is not all that there is. There is erection, a resurrection unto eternal life. People may say about me whatever they want. They may do things to me that may ultimately end my life. But it doesn't matter. There is another accounting there is the glorious morning of the resurrection. My labors are not in vain in the Lord. Paul continues the theme in verse 31, and he says, 
I protest, brothers, very strong language, by my boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now, Paul is not obviously saying he dies every day. This is metaphorical. He is saying, I carry about in my body the dying of Jesus every day. And he says, I'm not going to give up on the resurrection because I have labored and I have suffered for your faith in prayers and watching and sufferings and tribulations and hardships. I have done all of this for your sake, and I boast in you before Christ Jesus our Lord. But Paul asks, why do all of this if the dead are not raised? Why? Why suffer? Why be bold? Why be courageous? As of all we are doing is following a dead man whose bones are still lying in the tomb. Then he continues and completes that thought in verse 32 where he says, What do I gain, humanly speaking? Why did I fight with wild beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? If you remember, Paul in Ephesus is in Ephesus while he's actually writing this epistle. And if you remember from Acts 19, he had a huge controversy with Demetrius there, the silversmith. This man was probably the head of the local guild or what we would call a trade union that built little silver-plated statues of Diana, the goddess of love. Paul had shut that business down. Actually, it was his preaching the gospel that shut that business down. And, of course, Demetrius got quite upset because his livelihood was now at stake. So he started a riot. Now, Paul was taken by them. and I doubt here that Paul actually means he was thrown to the lions by these people. There's no record of that in Acts 19. And Paul was a citizen of Rome, so he could not legally be thrown to the lions. Again, I believe this is another metaphorical reference, like I die daily. Wild beasts. Now, what is the reference to this? Paul did armed combat with the devil. In Ephesians, Paul said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Wait a minute. Paul, you were wrestling with Demetrius. He says, no, I was wrestling with the devil. Demetrius was just the front. Demetrius was just the occasion. This was part of the deeper battle against the forces of darkness and idolatry and immorality and wickedness. But, beloved, do you get the point? Paul says, why do you do it at all if you don't believe in the resurrection? If there is no resurrection, I'm going to preserve my own life. I'm going to be as safe as I can. I'm going to do everything I can to be wealthy and healthy. I'm, going to put, I'm not going to put myself out on a limb for a dead man. If the dead are not raised, why do any of this? Why suffer? Why put one's neck in a noose for the sake of Jesus Christ? He is dead. Then he concludes that idea at the end of verse 32, being the third point. Remember verse 29. If there is no resurrection, baptism for the dead is worthless. Verse 30 through the first part of 32. If there is no resurrection, why suffer for Christ? And now at the end of verse 32, he makes another point. If there is no resurrection, he says, 
just embrace fatalism. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, and for tomorrow we die. Some have thought Paul here may be quoting from Epicurean philosophy. But keep in mind, Epicureanism was not hedonism. That was a later abuse of Epicureanism. And I'm sure some of the Epicureans fell into that. But their main philosophy was a little bit of cheer, a little bit of wine. The finer things of life were to be my pursuit. But don't do too much immorality because that could then hurt your body. And in many respects, the Epicurean philosophy is a lot superior to our American philosophy today. But Paul's point is, if there is no resurrection, all there is, is this life. That's it. Now, of course, in our day, the materialist would say, all right, all there is, is this life. But let's ponder that for a minute. All there is, is this life. I might have a good deal of money, but... I can't buy happiness with money. I may have had some flings and liaisons on the side, but ultimately they haven't been satisfying. And after I live maybe 60 or 70 or 80 years, and that's assuming I had at least the means to sample the so-called pleasures of this life, I'm going to get sick and I'm going to die. And if I live long enough, everyone around me that I love are going to die, and I'll be all alone. So you see, even from a materialist perspective, if all there is is this life, there is nothing there. Living is just as good as blowing your brains out, which is interesting, because that is one of the reasons suicide is on the rise in Europe. Atheism and suicide go hand in hand. So Paul is not saying, oh boy, let's eat and drink and then we won't have anything to worry about anymore. Paul is using this to say it is a miserable, empty way of life. But if there is no resurrection, you may as well choose it because really there is no other life out there for you. If this kind of life is all there is, you better make the best of it. You know, no holds barred. Anything goes. In verses 33 through 34, he gives the moral imperative of the resurrection. You see, Paul kind of changes the gears here just a little bit. In verses 29 through 32 are some of the consequences for denying the resurrection. And now in verses 33 through 34, he becomes more positive in the sense of being duty-oriented. And these are some of the crucial points of this. In verse 33, he says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Paul has here in mind, if you make close associations with those who deny the resurrection, or those who practically live as if there is no resurrection, then it will corrupt your morals. It will be your ruin. No matter how strong your faith may be, long, close association with bad company and bad doctrines corrupt the best of people. So by implication, what is Paul saying? 
Believe in the res- belief in the resurrection necessarily brings a separation with it. Now, I really know we don't like to hear this today because the church is so infected with the idea. If we could, you know, just package the gospel the right way, everyone is going to like us. If we're friendly and we're nice to others, they'll be nice to us. But the problem is, that's just not going to work. You see, because there is an antithesis between light and darkness, between Christ and Satan, truth and error, and no amount of friendliness is going to build a bridge across that impossible gulf. So there is a recognition here, Paul says, we are in the world, and as we deal with other doctrines and other beliefs, we've got to be very careful. Because the tendency through close association and not maintaining that antithesis is that sin begins to corrupt a good confession of faith. Now you might say to me, well, I thought grace was more powerful than sin. It is. And by the way, this is the assumption that underlines all missionary dating. Did you know that? And this is the assumption that underlines all missionary marriages. Uh, You know, well, I, I believe in Jesus, so I'll be able to bring this person to a saving knowledge of Christ without getting burned. Well, I hate to be a bearer of bad news, and maybe someone has a rare example. But I have never seen one case where in the long haul a true missionary relationship did not bring the godly person down. I have never seen it. Now, you might think that means grace is not as powerful as sin. No, it doesn't. It means God will not be mocked. And since he has set up this antithesis that we are to maintain in our mental processes, our worldviews, our relationships. Since we are to maintain this antithesis, He is not going to allow us to survive if we do not maintain that antithesis. Now, this, of course, does not mean total separation. It doesn't mean we can't go out into the world. We're supposed to be in the world in order to win the world. But our close associations, the worldviews that we dally with, the practices that we engage in, there has got to be a clear demarcation in our minds and a remembrance of the way God set up the moral universe, which is bad company corrupts good morals. I'll say a little bit more about this at the end. But that's the imperative of the resurrection. It brings a separation in this world between the living dead, if you will, and those who are alive in Christ and who will be raised one day to full redemption. We must maintain the antithesis in this world. We have to be a peculiar people. Then in verse 34, a second moral imperative of the resurrection is the kind of life faith in the resurrection produces. He says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. Two things are obvious here. First, awake to righteousness. Awake here is a verb that means stop being in a drunken stupor because of the influence of other things. 
And it was used sometimes in reference to alcohol and drug abuse or anything that alters your mental ability or dulls the senses and keeps one from living for Christ. Paul says, awake from it, get over it, put it away because a new era has arrived, the era of the resurrection. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do, reformedheritage.org. Real simple, reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by, reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB, post mailbox, 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported, which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 